coming up on Chopper's Politics. What happened in 1974? How, what was the exact process? That was 50 but, years ago next year, Gerard. Yeah, well... The, the, <laughs> you probably got to move that, on that, from that. that, that. Hello and welcome to the Red Lion Pub in Westminster and Chopper's Politics podcast. I'm Christopher Hope, the Associate Editor for Politics at The Telegraph. And this weekend, Rishi Sunak is putting the finishing touches to his plans to stop the small boat crossings from France into southern England. Delivering, he hopes, on another of his five pledges that aim to show his government can get things done. And behind the scenes, and very quietly, Tory MPs are whispering that they can see now how their party can win the next general election. This is not crazy talk, but serious talk from serious people. And this week we'll talk to one of those Tory MPs. And in the House of Lords, peers are growing increasingly concerned about sex education in schools. We'll have leading women's rights campaigner Baroness Jenkin of Kennington on the podcast to discuss that. And we will finish off with an interview with a group of campaigners who want to bring back our historic counties. And why not? But first, Labour's poll lead has fallen from 27 points last October at the height of the Tory crisis to as little as 12 points now and Tories are getting increasingly optimistic about their election chances. One of those is Sir Robert Sims, for me the very definition of a Tory grandee. He joins me now in the Red Lion pub. Sir Robert Sims, Tory MP for Poole, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast, great to have you on. Nice to be on. Uh, You're a former government whip, you've been in, in Parliament for 25 years now. You've seen a lot of the, the kind of the, the moving of polls and and the and the way that political fortunes rise and fall for the Tory Party, Labour, and and the rest. Do you see a way through now for the Tory Party to win the next election? Yes, but it's always been obvious, even from last year, there was always a way through to win an election. Michael Gove was asked in November, was it RIP Tories or could they recover? And he said it might be both. You know, <laughs> it, 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 we, things could continue to hit us and we have a heavy defeat or there was room to recover. And, and Osborne said that it needs to be a government of small steps. So the thing that destroys a government more than anything else is incompetence. Because you can be tough, you can be unpopular, But if you're competent, you can still get people to vote for you. Mm. If you have that degree of competence, then people can rally to you because they think you're part of the solution. But the moment you do something incompetently, then you are in trouble because people then blame you and think the other side can do better. Mm. And we went through a little phase in October where we looked incompetent. And and I think that the government really are one of trying to just govern properly day by day, week by week, month by month, do a limited number of things, not have 15 bright ideas before breakfast, so that some boxes are ticked and hope that at some point the British public suddenly say, actually, things are getting better. And the visions of what happened in the autumn have still been around, but it's now six months. And my guess is as time goes by, people are focused more on what the government's doing than on the events of last year, which were interesting. And what the, what the government is doing is, is those targets that the PM set out in January, aren't they, to halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt, cut NHS waiting lists and stop the boats. Three of the five are just three-word terms. I mean, it's quite black and white, aren't they, in what they're trying to do there. But as long as they can be delivered, maybe, by this year, it could turn the party's fortunes around. Well, we were just starting to reduce the waiting lists before the strikes in the NHS. So that's the one which I think is going to be the most difficult because it looks like the problems in the NHS are going to continue for a while. 
And it's very difficult with strikes to reduce a waiting list when uh, these things go on for weeks. Mm. Most of the others are achievable. And as I keep pointing out to my constituents on rubber boats, there are planes every week taking people back to Albania, uh, but they don't notice that. They notice people coming. They don't notice necessarily mm. those that we're, we're So talking home. about these minor successes more might be a good thing. Yeah. Basically, this is a phase thing. Firstly, you govern competently. Then you set yourself targets that you know, you know you're going to meet which means you tick the box. So people say, well, actually, they're meeting their targets. And then you start to develop a vision for the future, which involves the under-35s, perhaps buying a home or um, having life choices, which my generation have had rather more easily. But you can't jump into having a vision when you're sort of like recovering from the rather chaotic situation of last year. So you need to be sort of interim. So that vision comes when, you think? Towards Either the, the conference year? or in the statement in November. I think there October are already, or November this yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. I think there are already some signs of science and things like that, which the Prime Minister is quite a mass, which I think he's quite keen on. But really the Conservative Party has to speak. I mean, my kids are in their early 20s. You know, can they buy a home? Can they have the choices I've had? And if the Conservative Party can't give hope to youngsters and hope that they're going to be able to buy rather than rent, then our chances aren't going to be great. I mean, so, it's not great at the moment, though. The government has a, a sur- surrendered on planning reform at the moment, hasn't it? Well, actually, last year we were building nearly 300,000 homes, and there is an academic debate about why have an argument over targets that you're not going to meet anyway. Why not just get the homes built? And I've always felt that if government actually put money into councils where they were actually building then people would see an advantage in building homes rather than a disadvantage. So there are things that we need to do. But essentially, the government have an advantage. They're incumbents. And the reason we have governments lasting years rather than changing every term is incumbency is a big advantage. You have a recovering economy. And although people were moaning, we had schizophrenic headlines about, is pay going up too much or too little? And the reality is the inflation rate is likely to cross over six or seven percent pay increases in the summer and then we switch to uh, living standards rising rather than falling and there are some sophologists that say six months of rising living standards change political opinion how is that with with, with inflation at 10 percent how do you have it rising in well ne- ne- next month we're going to have inflation of eight percent really right, yeah <laughs> how, do you, how do you know that because the increase last year was two and a half percent that month that's going to fall out the figures in july from the energy from the energy, yep, energy. shock from energy alone. And there's already signs, if you look at the inputs to inflation, that food prices are now falling. They haven't yet been passed on. But right. the, if you look at the figures the ONS had yesterday, there were two very big figures for um, food and indeed for energy and household costs. They're going to fall. So July, when effectively the cap ends, but the price of energy falls again, there will be a fall in energy prices. And in October, there'll be a fall in energy prices. In fact, if you take that out, the, uh, those out the figures, we're around 5 or 6%. So and, and at the moment, a lot of um, prices reflect the fact that oil, every, oil affects everything. And there's so like these macro issues will come round in, in the government's favour by the end of the year. So you think that, going back to your original point, that you think that the Tories, the government, can win a majority in an election. Would that be in May or October next year, in your calculation? November. November next year. November 24, yep. the Tories can win a majority. Yes. As things stand. Yes. There is no. Uh, I, I was a candidate under John Major for three years, and it was the most painful experience of my life. Knocking on doors is a joy compared with those times when John Major was Prime Minister. Mm. Back, back to basics. Uh, yeah, yeah. Every, the, the gov- every government I've seen uh, has come back. Even John Major started the campaign 22 points behind and finished 13 points behind. 
so in, he, in 97. In 97. They got the 4.5% swing back. Now, if you just think a minute about where we are at the moment, we're probably 14 or 15 points behind. Well, if a campaign occurred today, we probably could knock 8 or 9 points out of that. So we'd lose by 5 or 6. But we've got 18 months. 18 months is a long, long time. I mean, in Australia, they have three-year terms. <laughs> so there is sufficient time. What we can't afford is further disasters, further splits, because that would knock us back even more. So we need a bit of luck. We need um, a greater sense of unity. And we need a bit of a tailwind. But I think it's perfectly possible that we can win. More importantly, I can't see any scenario where the Labour Party have an overall majority. And I've never, Despite the collapse of the vote in Scotland for the SNP, we think it, it hasn't may not happen. Yeah, well, well, how do you see Scotland playing out? Because people are pricing in a 20-seat bump MPs uh, for the Labour Party in Scotland up from one at the moment. Yeah. Are you there with them on that? No. So what's your forecast for Scotland? I, I think it's going to be 2017 in Scotland where the SNP are 36, 37, the uh, Labour Party have seven or eight seats, and we have nine or ten. Mm. You see, what people forget is that the SNP and the Labour Party swapping seats doesn't change the arithmetic at Westminster. But the SNP going down in Aberdeenshire and the borders and in Eyre gives the Conservative Party the opportunity to hold five or six seats that we've got and maybe go up two or three. So the centre-right gain. Um, Now, the number of seats in Scotland go from 60 to 58. And if we end up with eight or nine, that could really change the arithmetic down here. Mm. And don't forget, we're on 1819 in Scotland, which is better than we are in England. A bit of a recovery priced in, and I think that uh, we could do okay. That changes the arithmetic down here. The other thing we have to remember is that people's political views are not as fixed as they used to be. They're more p- people are flexible, they're less fixed. And I think in those circumstances, I think it's perfectly possible for the government to pull people back. But there's national incumbency, but there's also constituency incumbency. And if you have a lot of new young Tories in traditional Labour seats, where we come a respectable second, but we haven't won before, and they're turning up to open a paper bag, and ministers are coming in, paying an interest, you know, I mean, I don't suppose some of County Durham have seen much in the way of government ministers, and money is being provided, and and they're having surgeries, and you've got Tories with shops in the high street, then... You may well find the Ben Houchin effect. Yeah, yeah. Metro Mayor. Uh, Yeah, you you may well find that there are seats that we hang on to. Two points about the walls debate. The reason we won in uh, twenty fifteen. The red wall debate. No, the orange wall. I'm talking about now. Oh, orange wall. We collapsed the the orange. (laughs) That what changed politics was the twenty fifteen election. SNP taking Scotland. Us taking out the Liberal Democrats. Why did we win in twenty fifteen? We collapsed the orange wall. Why did we win in twenty seventeen? The Liberals made no progress. So the Orange Wall, actually, and the interesting thing about the, recent, the local elections coming up is how well they do or we do. The Red Wall is the bonus wall. Mm. But, but a lot of that isn't, aren't seats that we have won for the first time. A lot of these are seats we just win when we're doing well. Mm. But I think we will hold some of those seats because of the way things okay. are going. So I think the political map still looks pretty good for us. The date is the 20th of April, this uh, recording, 2023. The election might be in November next year, 18 months away. What's your forecast of Robert Sims right now? I think a conservative overall majority of 20. So we're back really in 1992 territory, 2015 territory in terms of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a fifth Tory win. I don't think... Well, in politics... Fifth Tory election win. I'm not sure that makes any difference. I mean, basically, people have a choice between two parties. The Labour Party looks weaker today. Their polls are good, but it doesn't exactly look like an alternative government. 
And um, the other thing about us making a slight recovery in the polls is that the thing about incumbency is that you start to set the agenda. Mm. So Labour have voted against some of our crime bills. They voted against our rubber boat bill. They're voting against cutting pension taxes so that doctors can work harder. So I th- actually, if you start to look at the agenda... Mm. The Conservative Party has started to pull the agenda I mean, back. what you're saying here is not what you see on social media. It's not where Twitter is. I mean, no. and it's not where a lot of pollsters are. It's not where Labour is. I mean, they, they, they look like they're going to win. I mean, you are going against a lot of, lot of, of, of headwinds there, aren't you? Well, Miliband had a 15-point lead a year, 18 months before the 2015 election. But we had a very strong narrative on the economy... And that's what we need to do once we get so signs, more signs of recovery and we get a vision, is, is get a narrative that we can all follow around and support. Well, Sir Robert Sims there, MP for Poole, former government whip. Thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. And if you have any thoughts about what Sir Robert had to say there, do send me an email, chopperspolitics at telegraph.co.uk. Thank you. Thank you. Now, coming up, Rishi Sunak has ordered a review of sex education in schools. And for some Tories, this is not before time, given what some teenagers are being exposed to on their phones from internet pornography. We'll be hearing from Baroness Anne Jenkin right after this. War in Ukraine is reshaping our world. For the past 12 months, the Telegraph's team of experts in London and correspondents on the ground have been analysing Putin's invasion of Ukraine every weekday on the Ukraine The Latest podcast. With over 24 million listens, Ukraine The Latest is the go-to source for up-to-date analysis on the war from every angle. Military, humanitarian, political, economic, historical, just to name a few. Each episode, we unpack the past 24 hours of the conflict, as well as regularly being joined by our own on-the-ground correspondents and guests who take us into their own experience of the war. Search for Ukraine The Latest in the same place you're listening to this podcast and follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thank you for listening. And we're back. Now, Baroness Jenkin of Kennington, Anne Jenkin, is one of the most outspoken defenders of women's rights in politics. But she's concerned about hardcore pornography, and how it's warping the perceptions of sex for an entire generation of young people. Baroness Jenkin of Kennington, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. Great to have you on. Thank you, Chris. We're going to be discussing very sensitive areas in this section of the podcast. So if you listen to this podcast in a car or with children, just perhaps turn this, uh, this part down for the next 10 or 12 minutes. Anne Jenkin, what effect is extreme porn having on our children? Well, I think what we're doing at the moment is conducting an unregulated social experiment that we have no idea what the consequences are going to be for for our children. If you think that only 15, 16 years ago, in order to access porn, you would have to reach to a top shelf and pay for it. And today, every single person who has access to a smartphone, I mean, literally, they have porn in their pocket. And we have no idea what the consequences are going to be of this. I was originally sort of really alerted to it by watching a film called Raised on Porn on YouTube. And in fact, I watched it again last night to remind myself how absolutely horrifying it is and what we are doing to the brains of young people who are not developed enough to cope with this stuff. Children stumble across it by accident often or they've got a friend who shows them a picture. And what happens is that they, they're afraid, they're embarrassed, they're disgusted, they're angry, they're curious, they're excited, and they are shocked. This film explains in some detail 
what it does to your brain when you see this this stuff before you How young are these developed. children? The this research was published by the British Board of Film Classification that said that 51% of 11 to 13-year-olds have viewed pornography online. And this is a conservative figure, but, I mean, quite often it's seven, eight, nine-year-olds. We don't know. Without going into detail, what kind of pornography are you, are you discussing? Is it just the you know, missionary sex or whatever? N- no. Is it much more violent than that? I mean, what it, what it appears is it's, it's a sort of pathway that you start with something reasonably harmless and then you 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 get more and more excited and this you know it's an addiction and this film is very clear that it's same as being a drug addict the dopamine hit is so exciting that you move to more and more extreme things. And the sites know that, so they know they're a gateway, do they, to some extreme Yes, and, and what I think behaviors. the real danger here is as well that boys think this is what girls want. Girls are, you know, horrified by what they see. There's a particular craze at the moment, if that craze is the right word, for strangulation. And there is um, some evidence to show that large part of the women getting strokes is due to this strangulation, which, as far as I can see, you know, women absolutely do not enjoy. And and also anal sex. And I read an article yesterday by The Guardian that shows that girls are particularly not, their bodies are not designed for it. And there is anecdotal evidence that now there are incontinence nurses in schools and, and this is doing real damage to our children. And also, you know, boys are objectifying girls. A lot of it is rough stuff. And girls are increasingly absolutely terrified at the thought of having sex because added to this, the fact that, you know, young people don't talk to each other as, I mean, I'm very aware of my age and that it's probably... You know, I'm too old to be talking nowadays on these things. But in the days before phones, we talked to each other. We had conversations. We would be able to say, I like this, I don't like this. And now, even now, they don't phone each other, do they? Your children don't probably, I expect, Chris. They, they text each other. They message each other. They don't talk. So I think that the failure to actually have a conversation around this is also important. And puberty in itself is difficult enough for both boys and girls with your with your bodies developing and you're not sure you don't like it and girls in particular you know they don't like boobs and periods and an unwanted sexual attention and I remember it myself the first time where somebody starts to you know gawp at you every woman will tell you the first moment they feel themselves becoming sexualized and of course you know they're not ready for that and added to which by the way the fact that girls are going through puberty much younger partly because of the disgusting food we're feeding them but that's a different subject but they are not ready for this they take a look at this and they think my god if that's what it's like to be a woman no thank you i i will so that's why you see so many teenagers wearing you know baggy tops and of course nowadays either turning to anorexia to stop their bodies developing and also, of course, down the non-binary and, and the roots into gender identity. So I think it has a very, very dangerous effect. And we have no idea what the long-term consequences are going to be with regards to relationships and addiction. And we have to sort it out. And we in Parliament have a responsibility to do that. So do you think that the exposure to extreme pornography is fueling girls trying to become boys transitioning is, is, that, is that happening in, there in, in is some certainly, extreme cases yes i think there is certainly some anecdotal evidence to to say so we know that there is a huge spike in the number of girls presenting with gender dysphoria a 5000% increase originally it was a small number of boys who were uncomfortable in their bodies and now it is a significant increase in the number of girls now there are, you know we need to do more research into what this what's about social contagion certainly a big part of it but there is um, a book 
uh, by an, an American called um, Abigail Schreer called Irreversible Damage, which explains exactly that the phone is behind, the iPhone is behind so much mm. of this. Girls, it's porn in your pocket, as you it's say. It's porn in your pocket. And girls traditionally would hang out together, sing and dance and laugh and do their hair and be bitches together. But now they're on their own, on their phone. And I think, you know, a combination of all these things... It's turning, you know, young people and boys, in, of course, become... And boys aren't happy about it, probably. No, they're they, not. They, they, they might see behaviours, they think, oh, is that what I have to do? Maybe, they, maybe exactly. they, they don't want to do that. Exactly, but they're getting, basically, they're getting their sex education online and not too much in the in the classroom. And it, it is too accessible. And the abuse of women and the pressure on peers and the, this disturbing perception of sex. And, and I was having a look at a Mumsnet survey yesterday where they've said that 84% of their this survey, the mothers wanted uh, the amendments that are currently in the in the bill, which are designed to make it harder for kids to access porn online. And they accept that it may not work 100%, but they are absolutely determined that we, and we and politicians, have to do something well, to make it less accessible. We'll, we'll come on to online harms bill shortly, but just, just on the point about the culture in the school, did you worry, though, that the horse has bolted, that that now it's out there, you know, it stays on the internet. And even if you took measures to ban videos or ban whatever you might try and ban as politicians, it it, it can't be banned anymore. And, and it's more about an education issue now. Well, it's both, obviously. And we, we have to alert children to the dangers of it and what the, what the consequences are. But we now have the technology to be able to do age verification. And we are able to... But it was passed in 2017, Anne, wasn't it? And nothing's happened since then. Well, it, I mean, things have move, moved on to, since then. I mean, it was passed in, in 2017, but the technology is now much better. And actually, the, the platforms and the tech companies actually want it to happen. But what it will certainly do is stop the more innocent people who are stumbling across it yes and and i think that's also much harder to get to i mean actually you know porn is always you've always had to pay for it traditionally and i would like to see some sort of paywall but that's not in this bill what we're looking for is age verification i mean i'm not absolutely sure that 18 is is you know (laughs) in some ways because of the danger of relationships it's understood you think in the culture the damage of pornography because we have you know there's a porn star martini a drink stormy daniels is a bit of a joke in america with the donald trump situation is it seen as being a bit of fun um and it's accepted uh, therefore and not challenged enough well that's what we're doing now that's why we're having this conversation Uh, i think that that was the case i think that that parents now are very very concerned about what their children are having access to teachers get that do they are they um, they aware of the the damage because that I, I, I hear it. School, I um, well, they, the first thing you do is somebody in the you know, even if you are a parent who keeps your child safe and has strict rules at home and has all the technological blocks available, you don't know what's going to happen elsewhere. And it may be that we've put off doing something about it. And I think more and more people are waking up to the the harms and the damages. I mean, you know about the incel movement, I'm sure. Chris, but a you lot of that what it is for some uh, it is, it's, it's young men who are involuntarily celibate and very angry with women and very misogynistic because they can't have actual sex. But they are allegedly addicted to porn there uh, that is behind a lot of this. I was reading an article yesterday about Billie Eilish, who herself admitted to be a singer. She's a singer who admitted that she had become addicted to porn. It is addictive. It gives you the same sort of hit, dopamine hit that delicious food does. It's a gratification thing, but it leads to addiction. 
we don't know what the long-term consequences of that are going to be. It is yet another consequence of the iPhone, the smartphone, the technology that you know, we're only just beginning to see it is moving so rapidly. But we have the opportunity to do something about it now and we have the responsibility to do, do it too. Do you think the, I mean, the British Senate has announced a review of inappropriate sex education, hasn't he? And he's brought forward, in fact, a review of RSC, Relationship and Sex Education Lessons. Yes, and I, and I think some of the materials that have been used over the, the last few years are, are extremely concerning. But there is more understanding about it now. And what is a big step in the right direction is that schools have been told that parents must have access to these materials so they can see what children are being taught. But there are very substantial... So parents should see what they're being taught. There should be a disclosure. Yes, yes, and it, it should be available for anybody to see. Because previously, schools have said that there is commercial confidentiality about some of these materials. But that, that is not the case. There is a proliferation of providers of these materials, which are not based on science in, in a lot of cases. And there's some absolutely horrific examples of what children are being taught. What, and what the, have you heard about that? Well, there's a dice game, for example, which tells you different kinds of sex that you you can have. And that's very disturbing for children. Children are being told that they can, you know, have hundreds of different genders. There are two biological sexes. That's the reality of it. What you feel you want to be, you know, is, is a different matter. But there are two biological sexes and that is what they should be being taught. And that if they're uncomfortable in their own bodies, then they need to be supported to understand what's going on behind that. Incidentally, a lot of young lesbians are being told that, no, they've been born in the wrong gender. Puberty and childhood. Well, childhood should be a time for innocence. And growing up at your own speed and your own rate. And all of this is very, very disturbing. And it's as a pathway to harm. But there is a role here for teachers, though, isn't it? I mean, being taught by a trusted adult. Yes, of course. On, on areas like sex is something that, that the children would recoil if their parents went near this stuff. So it, it is really up to teachers. Isn't yes, it? So, and, and they need. So even talking about, so let's say the word strangulation, talking about it at least allows pupils children to see it know it rather than be afraid of it and yes, not know what and, it is and of course they should be taught about the harms of pornography mm-hmm. and particularly when they see it too young and they should be t- taught what the um, what the consequences of seeing this stuff are after all relationships is yep. a big part of it too okay, and that we should be talking about that now and Anne, Anne you've written a very interesting and provocative piece in the telegraph which we'll link to in the show notes of this episode uh, headlined online porn is warping an entire generation this is a political podcast. You are a politician. You're a government whip in the laws. What do you think needs to happen now? I think that uh, we, we will see as the online um, safety bill progresses, we will see how it develops during the conversation there. And I absolutely pay tribute to my colleagues, Baroness Kidron, who's been absolutely spearheading. But what measures do you want, Anne Jenkins? I, I, I want uh, well, age verification. Age verification. I mean, that, that's the key thing that I'm I'm interested here, and and, and I know that um it's it's the thing that and parents over 21 and campaigners for extreme pornography. Um, maybe uh, uh, well, you, what, 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 18 is the, the. I think 18 is what is what we're aiming for, and okay. the campaigners, Cease and uh, Bernardo's in particular, have made very strong cases for it. We've got amendments. I'm sure that the government is listening. We've had lots of meetings with with Ofcom and with ministers. And um, as the conversation develops, and we'll see over the next couple of weeks how much they are listening, and I'm sure that people listening to this podcast will want to make their voices heard by encouraging the government to accept this age verification. Well, Anne Jenkin, 
Baroness Jenkins of Kennington with a thought-provoking interview there for the podcast. Thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you. Baroness Jenkins and Jenkins there. And finally, where are you from? I was born in Formby in Lancashire, but now it's called Formby in Merseyside. Does this matter? Well, my next guest think it does, and are campaigning now for politicians to bring back historic county names. Pam Morehouse and Gerard Dughill, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. You run a campaign called the British Counties Campaign. You want to bring back historic county names. Pam, where are you from? And where are you from, Gerard? Wigan, Lancashire. Do you think that the government officials don't understand the importance of historical county names to communities? And do, 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 do you blame authorities are out of keeping and not listening to what local people want? Um, I think that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think the idea is that sometimes they think that they know best and in the rush to demonstrate that they know best, yes, I agree, they don't actually take on board local sensitivities and affiliations that resonate within people's hearts, minds and souls. Yes, I mean, the West Riding of Yorkshire, Pam, that disappeared in 1974, didn't it? Yeah, they all, all the ridings did, yes. And, and, and why does it matter? I mean, what your campaign wants is to reinstate these historic county names, but that's cost, isn't it? And in, in a cost-of-living crisis, how can it be afforded? But, but, but Gerard, isn't the market moving towards you anyway? Because the government just reinstated Westmoreland and Cumberland, didn't they? They've dropped Cumbria, which was created in 74. But Cumbria still exists as a ceremonial county. This just sort of illustrates how much of a dog's It's breakfast. quite confusing, isn't it? <laughs> it, it but it gets, it gets more and more and more confusing. Like it, Even the changes last week, like part of Cumberland has now been put into Westmoreland County. So if you're in a place like Penrith or Alston, up at the top of the hills, what county are you in? Are you in Cumbria? Are you in Cumberland? Or are you now in Westmoreland and Furness? I mean, mm. take your pick. It doesn't really matter, does it? it I mean, it, it, it doesn't matter. What we... <laughs> There are big issues facing this country, Gerard and Pam, let's be honest. And, and maybe historic county. Colin, Colin, surely names matter. I'm not called. Uh, called uh, yeah, you call me a different name, that's your point. Um, <laughs> but, but the government's got a lot on its plate, hasn't it? Well, you, st- you start off with little things. You pick off the easy meat first. And I, I think that the best way of motivating people and people in this country and the serious problems that they face yes. is to show that just the basic fundamental things, aspects of their life, like their identity, they matter. They can be protective. They they can be preserved. Now it's time to get up out of bed and sort out all the other where stuff. where you're from matters. Yes, and we're engaging a researcher, hopefully, to actually probe minutely what happened in 1974. I think this is a really important part of it. How, how, what was the exact process? That was 50 but, years ago next year, Gerard. Yeah, well... You've got to move that, on that, from that. That, that, that. that makes it all the more interesting and all the more challenging. But it's happened last week. The same process that happened 50 years ago happened last week with the decision... Why? 
why doesn't Whitehall, Whitehall care about county names? Well, why doesn't it care about it? Well, well, they're, they're probably quite like messing about with counties that aren't their own, so they'd probably be quite keen to protect their own county identity. Oh, but that's, not, that's not fair. Well, isn't it? Well who, well, who did it? Who, who are these mysterious is it, is anonymous... It, isn't it a move towards postcodes and using postcodes to identify where an address is, that kind of thing? Well, that's fine, but do it with sensitivity. Yeah, do it with it. historicity. So should there know? be referendums, you think, to bring back counties? Well, they, they, well, they weren't in the first place, so why, why, why should there be to fix them? I, I mm. think it's a pretty common-sense approach that's needed. Just to give a bit of background, Chris, I mean, Pam has launched this petition back in 2015. Yes, how many have signed it, Gerard? Uh, it's about 3,000 so far, so, so it's creeping up. We're going, we're going for 2 million. 2 million is the big ask. Yes. So we need a multiplying effect. You know, You're a long way short there, 3,000. But, but, but we'll get there. This is a 10 or 15 uh, year campaign. It's not going to happen in, in, in a couple of years. It's, it's, it's a big campaign, so it's long term. Pampetition.com. www.pampetition.com. What, what made you start the petition, Pam? They weren't asked, is your point. Are you getting some political support for the campaign? Yes, we've Gerard. got about 28, 29 MPs that are supporting at the moment. We're engaging with every single uh, party. From all parties? Yeah, from completely across the spectrum. This is an important point. We're not to the left, to the right. It's not a traditional political campaign in that sense. It's just that we need political means. We need a bill through Parliament to preserve and protect the counties. And, and is the bill drafted yet? Yeah, we're at the sort of draft uh, green paper stage. We had a draft bill that, that got us going. We've just issued a, a green paper format so, so people can look at that. We've got three very, very, very simple aims. One type of county. Let's not have seven types of county definition. Let's align the counties uh, and the land of lieutenancies to the traditional counties for ceremonial purposes. That's the Lord Lieutenants. Lord, Lord Lieutenants. Let, let's align those areas to the traditional counties and let's stop having confusing names. So you don't have um, parts of Oxfordshire run by Berkshire Council and vice versa, Lancashire and Yorkshire running each other. If you give people the power to make a mess, they'll make a mess. That's what's happened all the way back to the 1970s. And, and there are, um, there's an all-party group for historic counties, isn't there? There is, yeah. That's under the chairmanship of Andrew Rossendale MP, who's been a staunch campaigner going back to... And Henry 10, Smith MPs involved. Henry Smith from the Tories. Uh, he's down in Crawley, Sussex. We've got Andrew Gwynne. He's our shadow at the moment. He's Denton and Reddish on the outskirts of Manchester. We've got people like Tim Farron. We've got one or two in Scotland. So, you know, as we say, it's, it's cross Do you, you think some... And we've, well, the parties right now are developing manifesto ideas for the election most probably next year. Yeah. Should there be some commitment on historic counties in that manifesto? Well, I, I, I believe that there should be. How you couch that is an interesting question, but it should be that you, you, you recreate certain elements of the national identity and national geography along traditional terms. And I think counties would be a very strong exemplar of how you can do that. Whether they're going to do that just yet... I don't know. We what, do wear our history lightly in this country, don't we? I mean, in America, these county names would be, would be so important, wouldn't they, in America? But in this country, we kind of just that's, that's a common go theme, with the flow yeah. a bit, don't we? Uh, Pam?
Oh, Pam, we're, don't start Brexit. That, that, we've done that one, haven't we? Well, we're with Nick today. We've got Nick Buckley, who's standing in the uh, mayoral referendum for Greater Manchester uh, next year. He, he's, he's, pledging he with a, you, he's with you in London today. Yeah, yeah he, he's actually with us. Uh, he, he's uh, pledging a referendum, a test referendum in towns like Bolton, which will test the market for a, a, a feeling of, of returning to tr- traditional counties. I think one of the points he, he made on the way down, it's a cheap shot, but, but when you talked about history... Uh, are other conservatives just does the con in conservatives mean con when when it's when it comes to sort of preserving our history that is a cheap shot but there is that feeling that are we treating our history seriously enough i think it's across the board are we protecting and, and, and cherishing our traditions that we can build on on the future Well, Pam Morehouse and Gerald Dughill from the British Counties Campaign, thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast, and we'll stay in touch. Thanks, Chris. Pam Morehouse and Gerard Dughill there. And that's all for this week's Chopper's Politics, listeners. Thanks to my guests this week, Sir Robert Sims MP, Baroness Jenkins of Kennington, and of course, Gerard Dughill and Pam Morehouse from the British Counties Campaign. Thank you to my producers, Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. But most importantly of all, thank you to you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a rating and a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find this show. And for daily insights into the world of Westminster, please do sign up to my daily Chopper's Politics newsletter. It arrives straight into your email inbox every weekday, and the link for signing up is in the show notes of this episode. And don't forget to read my weekly Peterborough Diary Gossip column, out every Friday at 7pm online, and in Saturday's copy of the Daily Telegraph. And while I'm talking about my journalism, please do read my account of going to a meeting of the 1922 Committee of Tory MPs. Yes, this week, after a decade of waiting outside their meeting, they finally let me in. The link for that will also be in the show notes for this episode. And finally, don't forget to buy a copy of the Daily Telegraph. I know you won't regret it. Until next time, though, cheerio! Cheerio!